Welcome to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast, the premier provider of leadership consulting, culture shaping, and senior level executive search services. Every day, we're privileged to talk with fascinating people who are shaping the future through their leadership and vision. Now we're sharing our conversations with you in this brand new leadership podcast. Each episode, you'll hear a different perspective from thought leaders and innovators. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hi, I'm Rory Singleton, a principal in Hydric and Struggles Industrial and Digital Practices. In today's podcast, The Power of Paranoia, I'm speaking on Skype to Girish Nagkarni. Girish has recently left ABB, where he was latterly the founder and president of ABB Technology Ventures. Girish has had an extraordinarily diverse career. Having trained as a lawyer, he's built technology startups, worked directly with Jack Welsh in developing GE strategy and he's led divisions of ABB with revenues of $1.7 In addition to that, he's worked in both the financial services and healthcare markets. Girish, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Hi. Can we start talking about your time at ABB and what you sought to achieve by creating ABB's technology ventures? You know, traditional technology companies are always looking over their shoulder, worrying about what the three guys and a dog in the garage were doing that could either disrupt or disintermediate them. Historically, the industrial companies such as ABB, GE, Siemens, etc., did not have to worry about that. Our technologies did not change that rapidly, and change was never driven by the startups out there. Uh, that, of course, started to change with the rapid rise of digital technology. So with the emergence of IoT, smart sensors, big data, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, we were seeing an increasing convergence between operating technology and information technology. And now we suddenly started getting worried about the proverbial three guys and a dog in a garage or incubator. So while on the one hand, we saw a lot of volume of activity in emerging technologies, on the other, it was very difficult to predict which technologies or business models will really take off and when. And so by creating a corporate venture group, we could take strategic stakes in some interesting technologies and business models, uh, which would both allow us to keep an eye on what was happening out there, as well as create some form of optionality for ABB in terms of how to proceed as we saw these things evolve. And so in terms of your approach to that, how did you benchmark and measure your success as well as ensure that you were really bringing back those learnings and that exposure that you were gaining from those startups back into the core of the business? You know, I mean, how you define success is really very difficult for corporate venture groups. You know, if you're a financial investor, success is very simple. It's how much money you make. For a corporate venture group, it's, it's much more nuanced because on the one hand, while you don't want to lose money, uh, you also are not investing predominantly to make money. You know, we think ourselves as the crow's nest. Our job is to be high up there and see around the corner and see over the horizon and alert the management as to what's happening out there. So if I can extend the crow's nest analogy, you know, our job is to say, hey, Captain, we see something in the distance. We don't know if it's a ship, if we don't know if it's a mirage, we don't know if it's an island, and we don't know if it's a whale. And if it's a ship, we don't know if it's friend or foe. And so the best thing which a corporate venture group can do is identify emerging technologies, emerging business models, try to anticipate what the immediate or long-term potential on our business can be, 
and then create options for uh, the businesses in terms of how to respond to them. Understood. And in terms of then engaging with the businesses, I mean, how did you approach a situation where you uh, supported the company or enabled the company to embrace uh, a culture that is welcoming and open to disruption? So the way we work with businesses was two ways. One is you spend a lot of time with them, understanding their challenges, their issues, their strategic vision. Uh, and on the other hand, you try to expose them to what's happening in the early stage technology world, whether it's technologies, business models, or, or, or anything in between. And then hopefully we can come to a conclusion as to say, okay, what do we think is going to happen? And this could range from disruption, disintermediation, or even enhancing the businesses. So areas like Internet of Things or smart sensors, etc. These are not necessarily disruptors, but these are things which can actually enhance your product offering, change your business models, etc. And then we work with our businesses to so identify the kind of technologies which we think we want to invest in, and then engage the businesses in doing the proper due diligence. And there were times when we also uh, put a person from the business on the boards of those companies, because we felt that there were two benefits to that. One is the the startup board could actually have someone from the industrial sector and who knew about the market and the customers and the technologies. Uh, and as well, we felt that this could create some kind of an ownership, an emotional attachment, if you will, for the business if they were on the board. And so when you were looking to build these teams, and indeed your own organization, how did you try to ensure that you embraced diversity of thought where team members are willing and able to challenge each other through having diverse perspectives rather than just ending up with groupthink? Yeah, uh, again, that's a very interesting question. So. Over time, we realized that we need a good mix of the following. Uh, first is you need people with technology background because obviously you're looking at a wide range of technologies. You need people with operating experience because if you're a strategic investor, you want to be able to add value to the company and understand what it takes to succeed. And finally, you want people with venture investing experience who know exactly how to originate deals, how to structure them, how to evaluate them, etc. But the second level of diversity, and I think which you're alluding to, is you also need a combination of people from inside the company and also from outside the company. You need people from inside the company, so we needed people from within ABB because A, they understood the business, uh, they knew who to go to in the company, they had relationships, uh, and, and ABB being a large global company with offices in over 120 countries, just knowing and having a network was valuable. But you also needed people from outside who could bring an outside-in perspective uh, and also relationships and credibility in the startup world. Uh, you know, I was in some ways uniquely positioned in that I had both the investing and venture capital background as well as having spent seven years at ABB in various roles before I started ABB Technology Ventures. And so I personally have the credibility and more importantly, the social capital to be able to challenge traditional thinking and push hard against whether it's complacency, inertia, or the NIH system. So you really need a good combination of both. Understood. One of the challenges we're constantly seeking to help mitigate is the issue of tissue rejection when you bring together diverse teams. Are there any lessons you have learned and successfully deployed 
to help overcome this issue? You know, the tissue rejection is, is, is a major issue, right? And I think to some extent, it really depends upon the culture of every organization and how often has that company brought on board people from outside. And there are companies where you look at senior management and it consists only of people who have spent their entire career at that company. Uh, and, and, and longevity is looked upon as a positive sign. A company like that will obviously have a very difficult time getting in people from outside or challenging the traditional thinking, no matter how much they want to do it or, or, or try to do it. And then there are companies where there is a significant amount of turnover or uh, ha is open to bringing in people from outside. And to some extent, I think ABB sort of fell somewhere in between. Uh, it clearly has a number of people who have spent their entire career at ABB and, and having worked in different businesses in different countries have had a very satisfying and varied career. But at the same time, uh, if you look at people at various levels, including senior levels, there are people who have been with ABB five years, 10 years, seven years, three years. Uh, and then the next thing is to the extent that you recognize that the world is changing and you need people from outside, I think you have no choice but to go and get them. But that still begs the question of, uh, you know, will the tissue rejection still happen or not? And I'm, I'm not sure there is an easy answer for this, Rory. No, you're right. And, and hence, it's been a, an area of real investment for us. So having had the privilege of working within many of the most prestigious industrial companies in the world, you've undoubtedly seen the industrial world go through a period of unprecedented change. And specifically within ABB recently, there's been a huge amount of exposure to Industry 4.0. So based on your expertise and your exposure within that field, how do you see that materially impacting the industrial world by, let's say, 2020? Uh, you know, first and foremost, the point I made earlier was there is an increasing convergence between IT and OT. And Industry 4.0 clearly is, is driving in that direction. Okay, So although in the short term, you, the, the, the impact will not be that huge because it's not that easy or it's, it's not easy or cost effective to replace legacy systems. Uh, the long term impact of Industry 4.0 will be profound. And if you add to that the impact of other technologies such as 3D printing, artificial intelligence, machine learning, etc., it has the potential to completely change what we produce, how we produce, when we produce, where we produce, and even why we produce. And it will significantly upend the current value chain of production and distribution and consumption of goods. By 2020, though, the impact would be much more around increasing efficiency and reliability of legacy systems and a significant increase in automation, particularly uh, a, a higher penetration of robotics and things like that. Uh, and you will also see some early success of platforms such as Predix. Uh, the other thing which I think the legacy industrial companies need to be careful about is the convergence of OT and IT will increasingly lead to more inroads by technology companies such as Cisco, IBM, SAP, Google into the industrial ecosystem. Uh, and finally, as we are seeing in the world of automotive uh, cars, uh, the impact will be that even for traditional hardware companies, 
the software element will have a bigger and bigger impact and a bigger role. So if you look at cars, five years ago, they were sold on the basis of their hardware attributes, acceleration, braking, turning radius, etc. And the stars in the companies were the mechanical engineers. Today, cars are being sold on their software and digital attributes, such as self-driving, automatic braking, navigation, connectivity to entertainment, etc. And the stars are software engineers. So even if you're a hardware business, software will become a significantly higher part of your value chain. And that is a fascinating mindset shift for many of these organizations to go through. And just focusing that in on leadership within those businesses, what implications do you see for the leaders and what will be actually demanded of them as leaders going forward to be able to make that effective transition across the industry? Well, the first implication will be what kind of leadership. Now, if you look at the technology sector, the leadership is a technologically savvy by definition and most successful company CEOs and top management is intimately involved with creating and driving customer experience. Unfortunately, I don't think we can say the same for the leadership of the industrial companies today. For example, it is not unusual for large companies to have their CFOs or general counsel ascend to the position of CEO. Okay, going forward, I don't think that will make that will work. Uh, and to some extent, I think this problem is compounded by the fact that, in my opinion, the boards of traditional industrial companies are manned by people who have very low digital IQ. Uh, having the CEO of a bank, uh, you know, who was CEO of a bank 20 years ago, uh, may be a prestigious person to have on a board but in my view, does not add anything from a strategic perspective in this rapidly changing technological world. So going forward, what will be demanded of leaders would be a significant amount of technological savvy, a, the ability to work in a collaborative way, both internally and externally, uh, and a less hierarchical and command and control way of operating and more working in, in the form of networks, uh, and the ability to both uh, work in an ambiguous and uncertain environment and be willing to constantly experiment and try things. And with your experience uh, in technology startups, private equity, and indeed some, some of the largest corporates in the world, I'm sure there must have been lessons that you've picked up throughout your career in how do you best incubate and support innovation? You know, at the, at the, the essence of this question, Rory, is really about how do you change the culture of an organization? And as you and I know, there are numerous books written on this subject. Uh, let me offer a few observations from you know, what I have seen and uh, from what works. First, not only must the change come from the top, but the leadership must be seen to be walking the talk. You know, people quickly realize that when, when leadership is just throwing out platitudes and slogans, if they're not actually walking the talk. Secondly, you need to be able to measure and reward the behavior you want to encourage. Then you need to train and coach the people on how to make the transition and function in the new world. Just exhorting them to do it is not enough. You need to show them how to do it. Next, you need to sort of recognize that and, and openly acknowledge and make provision for the fact that this change will cause some level of dislocation during the transition. Uh, and, and, and doing so 
and openly acknowledging it and helping people embrace it and deal with it will both improve the probability of success and reduce the resistance which inevitably is there. And finally, people must be encouraged to and also be rewarded for taking risk because uh, particularly even where the outcome has not been positive. In fact, companies have to celebrate failure so long as this failure is an intelligent failure and not stupid failure. Girish, thank you for your time. That has been a very informative session and wish you absolutely every success in your next step. Thank you, Rory. I, I enjoyed it too. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.